Father God, again, we uh, we come boldly before the throne of grace. If it were not a throne of grace, we would certainly uh, be fearful and trembling uh, and considering uh, the great obstacles that lie before us, which would be overwhelming to us indeed. But Father, uh, it is a throne of grace, as you have proclaimed uh, through your uh, representatives and uh, recorded in Scripture, a throne of grace, and we've been asked to come boldly before it and before you. And, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ is right there in the center uh, of, of our uh, our focus. Father, um, I thank you so much for all things, because you're the one who's sovereign, not we. We do not pull your strings by praying in a special way uh, or uh, with a more or uh, a sufficient uh, power and intensity and therefore finally gain your attention and uh, see you work. That is not uh, what you've revealed for us. So, Father, we're thankful that you're working and you've promised that you're already working all things together for our good. And though our circumstances may seem very difficult indeed at times and are for us, humanly speaking, Father, you are the one uh, who holds everything about our lives in the hollow of your hand. And it's the hollow of your loving hand, Father. And we've been reminded often not to ever forget that, that nothing can separate us from your love and your loving kindness. So, Father, I thank you for that uh, realization. I pray for each one in uh, our group and all those that may hear this uh, prayer at some other time may recognize, Father, this truth, that Christ paid the full penalty for our sins and uh, is gloriously uh, alive today from the dead. And uh, we take special note of that uh, in our fellowship today. So, Father, please bless us as we do that, and uh, may our faith be uh, strengthened through this uh, time of fellowship today in your word. Father, uh, we we pray for our nation's leaders, especially our president is under direct attack uh, by uh, a great many enemies. It's truly a satanic attack, is so, is so clear to many. But there are many aligned uh, against him and against the administration and against uh, our nation itself, really. And it's, uh, it's lawful and, uh, and profoundly amazing, really miraculous founding. So, Father, I, I just pray that, that you would give our president and those that stand for that which is true and right for our people and our nation. I pray that you'd give them great strength and power, Father, and endurance, that you'd give them hope, that you'd give them victory, and that the enemy may be defeated in these days in which we live. They are dark days indeed, Father, with so many of our people actively fighting against you and against the truth of your precious word. And our culture of life has been replaced with the culture of death in so many places. Hearts are darkened, Father, and only through your work may they be enlightened. So, Father, I pray for them in these days that many might be saved and delivered from this bondage to death and sin and all of its consequence. Father, I I pray for... uh, us now as we look into your precious word of truth, may it be in convicting and, and liberating and encouraging for each one. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm encouraged, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, it, it's always a challenge to consider not the, the truths set before us today, um, they're simple indeed and powerful. But uh, to consider how to present these truths is always a challenge. I, I suppose there's no question 
asked more often, at least on this particular day, uh, than this one, is Christ risen? So many are asking this question, and it's truly a great question. But I don't think it's the greatest question, because if it were, Paul would... Uh, would be asking here in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. He's really asking a different question, <laughs> and one that I think is, uh, uh, of course, uh, even more profound in a sense. So um, what uh, believers and unbelievers, uh, unfortunately, are are asking, though, is that question, is Christ risen? So many believers have had their faith shaken, it seems, by false teachers. That was the the fact in Paul's day as well. And that's why he uh, includes this great chapter here in this letter to the Corinthians, this first letter to the Corinthians. We live in what's been called a post-Christian era. And, of course, that's meaningless. It's, of course, unbelievers who uh, would present <laughs> such a concept, right, that that we live in a post-Christian era. I mean, if only that were so, they would say, right, because they will not believe the clear uh, teaching of Scripture. Recently, there was a great fire at the Notre Dame Cathedral, and I mentioned this last time, I guess, um, because it had just occurred. That cathedral was a symbol for so many within Christendom of the essence of the faith. And so with this cathedral burning, there was much speculation. The news media was completely filled with this speculation. Concerning what? Concerning the fall of Christianity in Europe or even the fall of Western civilization. So many thought that that cathedral was such a great symbol of those things, of the ascendancy of Europe and of the faith of Christ, right? So many thought that, but thought that in, I would say, insincerity, since many of those that claimed to be Christians were in fact not even believing what Paul wrote here in this letter and in this chapter that we'll look at so carefully today. Uh, over 50%, I may have mentioned this last time, in a survey in Great Britain said that they doubted that Christ truly had died for the sins of the world, for their sins or the sins of the world. They doubted it. These are professing Christians doubting that Christ had died for their sins, or equally doubting that he truly had risen from the dead. Over 50% of those in Great Britain who professed faith in Christ. So what Christ did they have faith in would be the question, right? Surely not the faith of the Bible and the Christ of Scripture. Well, I might wonder, and you might wonder, how many of those professors of the faith had ever read the Scriptures that we'll read this morning and, or more importantly, had ever believed them, right? Because to turn so far from the faith uh, indicates a serious deficiency in their faith indeed, one that uh, might even uh, uh, be questioned by by any of us, for sure, right? Today, I would like to consider how the Apostle Paul considers this great question, is Christ risen, by asking a rather different question, but a related one, namely, if Christ be not risen, <laughs> if Christ be not written. And what he is doing here is writing to believers. When Paul opens the letter to the Corinthians, he makes it clear that he is writing to believers, not to unbelievers. So Paul is in no way here attempting to convince anyone of the truth of Christ's resurrection. They'd already 
believed that. So this is not a letter uh, attempting to convince skeptics <laughs> or uh, false teachers uh, even. Uh, it's a letter to believers. It's a letter to his own dear ones, the ones he had brought to Christ in faith through his bold preaching of the gospel, the ones that, whose faith had, in, in effect, turned the world upside down. The Greek-speaking world was being turned upside down by Paul's preaching and teaching in these various missionary journeys. So he does not ask the question, is Christ risen, but rather the related question, if Christ be not risen. Well, I hope and pray that our fellowship today will be a blessing to you and establish your faith as we consider what is written concerning this most critical question. We begin today with uh, uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and uh, chapter 15. And so you know where we're going today. Our outline will be simply this. First of all, the statement of truth, the blessed gospel of the grace of God. And we'll find that very simply stated, but powerfully stated there in those first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15. The statement of truth, the blessed gospel of the grace of God. Secondly, the seven questions, the seven questions that reveal the truth of the gospel in all of its power. The seven questions that reveal the truth of the gospel in all of its power. And thirdly, the seven scriptures that confirm our faith. The seven scriptures that confirm our faith. We'll add those at the end because I don't want us to, to leave our fellowship today without having them very clearly in mind. They're fundamental. They're the bedrock upon which we stand as believers today. Okay, uh, first of all, then the statement of truth, the blessed gospel of the grace of God. Gail, please read that for us uh, as, as a starting point today from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Thank you, Gail. So that's just a simple statement of of the good news, of the grace of God, is it not? He says there in those first words, this is the gospel I preached unto you. Paul had staked his life and ministry on preaching, which means heralding or proclaiming this gospel, and not another one by implication. This was the gospel he had preached to them, right? He goes on and he says, which you received. He's writing to believers. They received his gospel. And then he says more than that. He says, and wherein you stand. They stood on that teaching and that preaching. They were believers, and of that he was not doubting. But some had already begun to give up this precious truth, it seems, right? The precious conviction that had changed their lives was turning the world upside down through their bold testimony. That was already being compromised by false teachers who had come into their midst and had begun to deceive them. Nevertheless, it was this gospel and this gospel only in which, he says, they 
stand and indeed, of course, in which they might stand, uh, for there is no other, right? And then he says, uh, most precious words, he says, by which you are saved, by which you are saved. I love the King James translation here. <laughs> it, it, it's a, uh, a perfect tense in the Greek language, okay? And tra- perfect tenses in the King James translation are usually translated this way with the word are and then the, the past tense of the verb, right? You are saved, meaning you were saved in the past and you continue to be saved now, right? And the implication is this will go on for eternity, okay? Only through this gospel were they saved. You see, uh, that's a, a, a pretty strong statement indeed. It's, it's a, a perfection kind of statement, which today so many are so unwilling to assert. Uh, they seem so uncertain of their salvation to make such a strong statement as Paul makes here. Notice he's making this statement about them, and you know from the Corinthian letter, there were many issues there, right? But he knew when they were saved and how they were saved, and therefore he had confidence. It was through his preaching of the true gospel of the grace of God. And Satan was working full-time to prevent their believing, but Satan failed, and they believed nevertheless. It was by the power of God Almighty that they had been saved and were still saved at that time. Okay, then he says, if you remember, and so forth, and I'm not going to comment too much on that now, except to say this, that uh, it's sort of it's sort of like saying, you know, to speak as Paul might have spoken at the time if he wanted to speak at more length about it. I'm assuming that you remember what you held most firmly when you believed. You do remember, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, because, of course, uh, now some there, some there had uh, turned aside from the truth. Okay, and this was most disgraceful indeed. Huh? Then he says something very profound. He says, unless you believed in vain. Six times in this chapter alone, in verses 10, 14, 17, and 58, the word vain is used, okay? And it's it's very, very uh, important to understand what this means. It means basically this, without effect. Vain means without the desired effect, okay? Vanity is that which has no meaning no ultimate effect. Okay, so unless you believed in vain. Well, there are many dangerous uh, teachings going around today as to what that was intended to mean there, (laughs) as if somehow the issue was how much, in other words, the quantity or how deeply uh, they had believed, uh, just trying to distinguish somehow between, as is often done today, between something that's usually called easy believism as opposed to true and saving faith, as if it's a matter of degree and not quality. But that's not Paul's point here. Certainly it's a matter of quality. Uh, He says uh, his point, and he makes it very conclusively as he goes on in this uh, chapter, the point has to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he be not raised, as we shall see in a moment, right? Uh, as Paul explains himself as he goes on here, if he be not raised, then they believed in vain. That's what he meant when he wrote those words, unless you believed in vain. Please understand that. It's most critical to, to know that. Uh, it, it's a hopeless cause for people to be told today uh, everything's an issue of how strongly you have believed. This whole idea of lordship salvation is an error from Satan uh, indeed, right? The issue isn't uh, that. The issue is upon whom 
have you believed and have you taken God at his word in that faith? And have you believed the true gospel, in other words, not the false gospel, which always adds additional human works uh, to the equation? Okay, so some had come in there to the assembly and have begun to teach a false gospel. That's the issue. Paul goes on and he says, I delivered unto you that which I also received. And now we get to the real meat of it here, as it were. <laughs> and this is now where he states the gospel in this short and very succinct and clear form. He says, first of all, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. When he says Christ died for our sins, there's a wealth of meaning to this. And Paul, in his letters, explains that very, very fully and completely. If we had about a week's time, maybe a year's time, maybe a lifetime, we could explain all of the dimensions, uh, perhaps, of that, right? I I wouldn't be able to explain it fully enough, but Paul did, right? And uh, as we study his letters, we can uh, understand exactly what he meant by that. Now, what I'm not trying to say is that uh, Scripture is so impossibly complex you can never understand it. What I'm trying to say is the full depth of meaning of this is something you will never exhaust, okay? We will never exhaust it, not even in eternity future, because we'll be reveling in it and continuing to gain in our appreciation of the depth of its meaning uh, for all eternity. Christ died for our sins, and it was entirely in accordance with the scriptures, as is laid out elsewhere in the New Testament, right? There's so much uh, there to that subject. We'll proceed today and and look into some of that, and I hope it's a blessing for you. He goes on and he says that he was buried. Well, why? Well, because he'd actually died. You don't bury people who are living, right? That's the point of that. Uh, And then he rose again the third day. Remember, he's writing to believers. They've already believed this. Nobody in that group could seriously question that Christ was buried and that he then rose again because so many had given testimony. They'd actually seen uh, him after his resurrection, right? When he says he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, again, he's saying this is all detailed in the scriptures if only you will open the Bible and read it, right? Okay, so he uses the word rose again. Very interesting word in the original Greek because the word actually has to do with everything sort of coming together that was previously fallen into disarray. You know, what happens at death is that the body loses its life force, right? and everything begins to fall into disarray. But when you're raised from the dead, it all comes back together. In fact, the person who is raised from the dead would stand up (laughs) and join the group, right? (laughs) Only now with a resurrection body, right? Not subject anymore to the uh, power of death, okay? That he was raised from the dead was undeniable. Everyone knew it, even the Pharisees and Sadducees. Most amazing that they would continue to fight so uh, seriously against this precious truth, right? That Christ was indeed gloriously raised from the dead. So, So there we find a short yet a very profound statement of the truth of the gospel. There's really no comparison to it anywhere in the scriptures in terms of the, the shortness, the clarity, and the profound power of its words, right? But many fail to grasp the full meaning of these words and uh, fail to take God at his word to their eternal uh, uh, judgment, right? Let's read about that before we proceed. Roy, I'd like you to read for us there in 
Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And flame and fire, take vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Amen. Thank you, Roy. That's uh, the consequence of failing to take God at his word regarding his son and the consequence of his glorious death and resurrection. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and that is being accomplished today, and it's entirely based upon the sufficiency of his completed work, right? That's what Paul writes so boldly. Well, Paul's presentation now as he continues in this chapter is an amazing, an amazing statement. It would be hard to find anything comparable anywhere in history. Back in uh, ancient times, even hundreds of years before uh, Christ came into this world to save sinners, uh, there were famous philosophers in Greece who were experts in logic, and uh, one of them was named Plato, and he devoted his most famous work, called The Republic, to a series of logical arguments. What Plato did was use a form of argument that philosophers called reductio ad absurdum. Reductio ad absurdum. It means to reduce to an absurdity. Okay? So this form of argument is constituted very simply. You deny the statement to be proved and see whether you end up with an absurdity. If you do, you've proved the truth of the original statement. Now, everybody uses this kind of argument in one way or another, okay? But if you haven't been in school for a while, you haven't heard these words. Maybe never heard them, because I don't know whether your education was, uh, you know, that excellent. Mine wasn't. I never heard anything like this in high school, at least, right? But it's sort of fundamental, indeed, to uh, to Western civilization, which is very much based upon the Greek philosophy in a lot of ways, okay? So what Paul does here is to use exactly that technique. And I think that's what makes uh, chapter 15, at least this section of chapter 15, quite remarkable. Because he's writing to people who've already believed this truth, right? The truth of the gospel. And now who have started to deviate, right? And so he's saying, well, let's just consider where this leads you ultimately, where does it logically lead you to turn away from the truth that you have already received? And so through seven questions, either asked directly or implied, Paul now reveals the truth of the gospel in all of its power. Okay, so let's look at that. Okay, first of all, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 20, and then verse 32. Linda, would you please read that for us? Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. For if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Yea, and I yet, I yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead, and became first fruits of them that slept. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts of Ephesus, what advantage of me if the dead rise not? Let us eat 
and drink, for tomorrow we die. What a conclusion. <laughs> that last uh, statement there, last question, right? Thank you so much, Linda. What we have here are seven questions, either asked directly or implied, uh, which are meant to reduce to absurdity, right? Remember, he's writing to believers. He's writing to you, to me. We've already believed this truth, right? What now should we think if we begin to turn away from it, right? And so that's really the content of, of what Paul has to say here. Uh, as I've looked into this again in the last few days, I've just found that every phrase here shakes me to my core. As a believer, it should shake you too, right? The convictions of the heart that arise as we read these are just profound indeed, right? Uh, they're overpowering, astounding for us who have believed. Or as Paul began this section, verse 12, right? Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead. The problem was that they had begun to shift uh, in their understanding of what the true faith actually was all about, right? They'd begun to lose their focus on the true content, the true content of the faith of every believer, right? Because without that clearly in mind, we begin to lose uh, our footing altogether and turn off into vain, vain and empty janglings, uh, Paul writes in another place, right? Many today need to study and take this to heart because it's increasingly being said, and you're hearing this everywhere, that faith is sort of like in a vacuum, Okay. And really, therefore, since there's, there are no absolutes uh, anymore that you dare to speak of, right? Everything is relative. Then faith is whatever you want it to be. You could look at uh, Hinduism or Buddhism as a believer, people say, and gain in your faith. And that's what's being preached in the pulpits of this nation by a great, great many leaders today, even in mega churches, okay, where they're really honoring the so-called faith of what we know are unbelievers, right? Faith isn't in a vacuum. It has nothing to do with a feeling. It's not an experience. We must take God at his word to be saved, and that's what faith is all about. So, really, these seven questions are now are going to nail that down. Paul is going to nail it down quite conclusively here. So the first question is there in uh, implied in, uh, in, in this case. How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? What an incredible question for Paul to ask. Of those believers in Corinth that some of them now are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. Notice they were not directly contradicting the resurrection of Christ there, because apparently they still proclaimed it, right? It's just that they lost their understanding of what it meant. And so they're no longer thinking of Christ's resurrection as physical and bodily, but only spiritual, okay? And that was the problem with Gnosticism, and the Gnosticism had crept into the church. The Greek uh, philosophy had uh, taken root there. Uh, those that were saved there, in many cases, had come out of that false philosophy and, and religion into the true faith, but now they're moving back to where they had come. Okay, so it's, it's sort of as if when Paul asks this question here, he cannot wait any longer to write of this most critical issue. It's all the way down chapter 15 of the letter, as we've divided it up into chapters, right? It's as if he cannot any longer wait. He now needs to deal 
with this most serious question. How can it be? Are you serious, in other words? Some of you are saying there is no resurrection from the dead. How can it be? What could be more ridiculous, right? So one is to draw the conclusion that this is completely ridiculous, impossible. And therefore, that Christ is raised is indeed correct, right? The second question is in verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? It's clear. One cannot cannot contradict this, right? If there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Is that not ridiculous, right? Of course it's ridiculous for anyone who has believed the gospel of the grace of God, right? So he continues to follow the argument here. If Christ is not risen, uh, indeed, right? And that follows from what some were teaching, that there was no resurrection at all, right? And that it's basically impossible, okay? Now, back in, in earlier times, of course, it was the Sadducees, right, who taught just exactly that, right? They did not believe there was ever, and nor could there ever be, a physical resurrection. Okay, so the false teachers are simply wrong. What Paul is doing is trying to comfort the believers here, and he goes on to ask the third one, and it becomes rather repetitive because, you see, everything is based on this this question. If Christ now be not risen, verse 14, then, drawing the obvious conclusion, right, then is our preaching vain and your faith is vain. This surely would have pricked some consciences, right? Because it's so clear, right? If Christ is not risen, then everything was to no effect, right? Our preaching, your teaching, your testimonies, right? All empty, without any meaning, without any consequence. It would have been far better not ever to have gone in that direction, right? Not ever to set yourself up as an example of true faith, right? By your preaching, by your testimony. But even worse, your faith in that case, is vain as well. In other words, empty and to no effect, right? And uh, in fact, if it's uh, to no effect, then the consequences are really profound, as we'll see in a moment, right? So they would be false witnesses indeed. The fourth and it's, again, repetitive. If so be that the dead rise not, then we're all false witnesses. Meaning, Paul means by that, he himself included, right? <laughs> we, meaning you, yes, certainly you, but what about me, right? Paul has based his entire life on this truth. Everything. Paul has sold himself out to the truth of the gospel, right? To the reality of the risen and ascended Christ, Jesus, right? It's everything for him that this is true and not false. And so this surely would have pricked consciences. Why? Because they loved the Apostle Paul. He was the one who had brought Christ to them, right? And if Paul even himself were a false witness, everything uh, falls to dust, right? Uh, far better not ever to have left that idolatrous and evil religion that Corinth was a center of, right? That temple Okay, he goes on. 
and repeats the basic argument in verse 16. This is the fifth time now. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. Right? Very simple. Very simple indeed. And then the sixth question, if Christ be not raised, then your faith is vain. And again, he repeats that, but now he adds this, and, and this is the most crucial point of all, then you are yet still in your sins. And all those that have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Meaning, your dearly beloved family members and friends who have believed this gospel have had their sins forgiven, but now have died. If Christ be not risen, they are still in their sins, and they have perished. Okay? That's the most important point of all. And then in verse 19, uh, the seventh time he asked this question, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable indeed, right? What could be worse than that? Because if Christ be not risen, we are indeed miserable because if we can only have faith in during this lifetime in Christ, then it's all over at the point of death, right? So if Christ then be risen, as he writes in verse 20, now speaking very, very positively, right? He has become the first fruits of them that slept. Amen. Now, he concludes it uh, in verse 32. I love this one. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Christ be not risen. Now, I want us to just quickly read these scriptures to confirm our faith, okay? Because in these scriptures, and we could find many, many, many more, I've only picked about one-third of them, about one-third of them where the Apostle Paul shows us the full meaning of the gospel, right? What it means to say that Christ died for your sins and mine, what it means to say that he was buried, what it means and what are the consequences of him having been gloriously raised from the dead? So, First Timothy chapter 2, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Do you hear that? Now, that's a statement indeed, huh? To be saved, coming to a knowledge of the truth. Okay. Ted, would you please read for us Romans chapter 4, verses 22 through 25. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Thank you so much there, Ted. I'll read Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his 
life. Here we have justification, the salvation from wrath, reconciliation, and saved by his life. So as you can see, the focus is going to be on life and living, even the resurrection, the quality of life that we have received by a resurrected Savior, right? Okay. I'll read Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Again, the focus on the life, on the life. I love those verses, don't you? The love of Christ constraineth us. Amen and amen. That's the heart of the Cripple Tom track that I love to uh, to give out when I can to people. Okay, and then as we go on, Steve, would you please read for us from Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Again, the focus is on the life. What Christ brought forth in his resurrection is life everlasting, and we have received it uh, directly as he's come to dwell within each one of us believers. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, Patty, would you please read from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Amen. Amen. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, Steve, if you could look it up, instead of me reading it, I think I'll ask you to read it. Second Timothy chapter 1. Verses 8 through 12 will be our final reading for today. Be not, be not therefore ashamed of, our, of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel, whereof I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and then persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Amen. Thank you so much, Steve. And uh, as I said, this is only like one-third of all the verses where Paul writes about the the amazing and wonderful consequences of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ for us who have believed, right? He goes on and on about it. He cannot be quiet. He even writes such things as this, and I'll read this uh, in closing. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 through 57. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us 
the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, these questions that Paul asked uh, are meant to underscore our faith. Not to question it, but to underscore it, right? He's writing to us as believers. So, is our faith strengthened? Therefore, when we read what Paul has written here, uh, I trust it has been today, as we've considered again, this precious revelation. The value of this teaching, of course, is eternal. When we've believed on God and taken him at his word, it's eternal. But it has a present value today as well, does it not? In fact, I could ask you this question of myself. Uh, how can we truly live without these precious promises, right? How? Well, any questions or comments before we close in prayer today? Okay, let's go to the Lord. Father God, thank you. Thank you for gathering us around this word of truth today. Indeed, it is powerful. What the Apostle Paul has written here should always, as believers, cut us to the very core of our being because it is where we are living together with our Lord Jesus Christ. It is uh, in our hearts that he dwells and dwells most perfectly. So, Father, indeed, uh, we are living witnesses of the resurrected life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Life and immortality in corruption has been brought to light by the gospel, and we are living representatives of that truth. So, Father, uh, may we go forth with boldness and proclaim to all, uh, that indeed he is risen. And we would thank you, Father, in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.